So I recently wrote a piece titled The Place Behind Her Eyes. You might categorize it as a kind of existential poetry. I think it's a very beautiful piece and I'm really proud of it, but I noticed that after I wrote it, that I felt tempted into a kind of self-pity. In fact, existentialism itself could be categorized as elegant self-pity. The idea that we are the ones who judge whether the universe is just or unjust, that we are the center and everything else bends to us, has within it a kind of narcissism. It has its place, certainly, but it is a tool, not a destination. I think about when I was a kid, the only way I knew how to feel significant socially was to get really good at making fun of people. And I did that for several years and got very good at it. But eventually I noticed that uh, I did not want a life where I just made fun of happy people. After a while, that wasn't enough. I wanted to be the happy person. Existentialism has its place, but it's a tool, not a destination. It allows for too much self-definition to ever be a place you would want to call home. It facilitates too much neuroticism to ever be a place where you could live and feel at peace. If it's taken too far, existentialism becomes a trap. This trap operates in two steps. Step one, position the self as God. Position the self as the thing to which everything else bends. And step two, eviscerate with ruthless detail, with ruthless, quote, quote, honesty, what an empty, broken, and unsatisfying God I am. This is a strange thing, but I find that existentialism is something like you position yourself as the center of all reality. Then you rip yourself into shreds with unbelievable honesty or detail over what a bad God you are over what a sad universe we exist in. As if these two steps are unrelated. As if first positioning the self as the center, as God, does not have something to do with it. I find this tendency within myself. The self-depreciation of existentialism feels like honesty. And because it feels like honesty, there's something beautiful about it. There's something about it that it's almost a kind of beautiful self-pity, a sort of beautiful cynicism. And the beauty, the proximity to beauty, the proximity to honesty, makes it unusually alluring, makes it unusually attractive as a trap. But under that veneer of honesty, of sadness, of looking at the world as it is, or whatever you want to call it, those things protect the core underneath this belief. And the core is a core of heartbreak, of cynicism, and most of all, of ego. To make matters even more complicated, the people with this kind of narcissism actually do genuinely lack something that they should genuinely have. What they lack is not a praise of their clever observations about the injustice of reality, the injustice of being, but what they really lack under that, under that desire for cleverness, under that desire for being noticed. What they really lack is a love which is unconcerned with cleverness, a love which simply desires to hold. Is there any meaning? Does life have any meaning? Places the fate of life's most important question of the nature and value of all existence as something which is to be questioned in the courtroom where I alone am judge. And that's fun for a while. But eventually, 
a truer, a deeper question emerges. If there was meaning, would I even know how to see it? If meaning was in front of me, would I know? What if I am not the judge, but just a witness? I once had a counselor challenge me to go an entire week without self-deprecating, without using a kind of humorous self-deprecation around other people. I tried to convince her that it was in good fun, that it was in good faith, that I was trying to bond in some way. But she resisted and said that underneath that, there was a kind of subtle psychological manipulation, that underneath the self-deprecation was a kind of manipulating of the outcome and manipulating of the way that a person would respond and that I should do what I could to stop it. A few days after writing this intro, I stumbled across a piece by G.K. Chesterton, which lays it out more beautifully than I ever could. Here's what he had to say. There is a deep mistake in the way we view the terms optimist and pessimist. The assumption of it is that a man criticizes this world as if he were house hunting, as if he were being shown over a new suite of apartments. If a man came to this world from some other world in full possession of his powers, he might discuss whether the advantage of midsummer woods made up for the disadvantage of mad dogs, just as a man looking for lodging might balance the presence of a telephone against the absence of a sea view. But no man is in that position. A man belongs to this world before he asks if it is nice to belong to it. He has fought for the flag and often won heroic victories for the flag long before he has ever enlisted. To put shortly what seems the essential matter, he has a loyalty long before he has admiration. It seems to me that our attitude towards life can be better expressed in terms of a kind of military loyalty than in terms of criticism or approval. My acceptance of the universe is not optimism. It is more like patriotism. It is a matter of primary loyalty. The world is not a lodging house at Brighton which we are to leave because it's miserable. It is a fortress of our family, with the flag flying on the turret, and the more miserable it is, the less we should leave it. The point is not that this world is too sad to love, or too glad not to love. The point is that when you do love a thing, its gladness is a reason for loving it, and its sadness a reason for loving it even more. All optimistic thoughts about England and all pessimistic thoughts about her are alike reasons for the English patriot. Similarly, optimism and pessimism are equal arguments for the cosmic patriot. A mother does not give her child a blue bow because he is so ugly without it. A lover does not give a girl a necklace to hide her neck. If men loved Pimlico as mothers love their children arbitrarily because it is theirs, then Pimlico in a year or two might be fairer than Florence. Some readers will say that this is a mere fantasy. I answer that this is the actual history of mankind. This, as a fact, is how cities did grow to become great. Men did not love Rome because it was great. It was great because they loved her. The only right optimism is a sort of universal patriotism. What is the matter with the pessimist? I think it can be stated by saying that he is the cosmic anti-patriot. He has a secret desire to hurt, not merely to help. The pessimist, who is the cosmic anti-patriot, 
uses the freedom that life allows to her to lure away people from her flag. The evil of the pessimist is then not that he chastises God and men, but that he does not love what he chastises.